Chapter twenty three of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty three The Channel Islands. In order to complete the account of the action of the Royal Commission, extending as it did through a period of several years, it became necessary, in the previous chapter, to leave Miss Dix at the close of her personal share in the work of reform in Scotland. A severe inflammatory attack, brought on by the damp and chill she had exposed herself to in a hurried visit to Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's, when already over-fatigued by the heavy responsibilities of her work in London had left her little strength for the farther probing of the foul nest of evils she had agreed to prosecute on her return to scotland spite of all she persisted until her report finally prepared for the help of the commissioners she now sought rest in the home of her friend dr tuke in york england not for long however circumstances were soon to occur destined once again to bring to her lips the familiar refrain rest is not quitting the busy career the original impulse toward the new project which was before long to engross miss dix's mind will be found stated in a letter addressed by her may sixth eighteen fifty five to her lifelong friend and at times personal physician dr h a buttolf then superintendent of the trenton asylum new jersey as written to her medical adviser this letter contains a more detailed account of her physical disabilities than on the matter of health was common with one who in her correspondence and intercourse with her friends so generally acted on the sundial maxim oris non numero nisi seranas the letter soon goes on however to give an account of the chance interview which first called her attention to the sad condition of things existing in the channel islands and is farther accompanied by a copy of a communication from a young Dutch alienist, Dr. Van Leuven, then temporarily resident on the island of Jersey. Footnote. A number of islands in the British Channel, politically attached to Great Britain, but connected with France by geographical position, the largest of which are Jersey, Guernsey, and Alderney. End footnote. With these preliminary explanations, the letters will tell their own story. Quote, York, May sixteenth, eighteen fifty five. My dear friend, you will recollect all the symptoms for which you have treated me when I have from time to time been your guest. These have never left me at any time and though not ill always i have at no time felt well enough to justify uncertain journeys on the continent counting time since i left the steamer i find that rather more than half the period i have been either really too ill or too languid to do anything the irritation of the mucous membrane of the stomach has of late affected me more seriously and the inaction of the heart has left me feeble in scotland i felt myself giving out but came forward to york intending to rest a day and then see the fourteen public and private institutions for the insane in this immediate vicinity i commenced but gave out and am here in a cheerful quiet apartment next to mine retiring from the labors of an active life spent in the cause of the insane lies helpless the good samuel tuke the master of this house the angel of death stands at the door watching but still the last great blessing is deferred the entrance into the immortal life 
where no clouds obscure the thought nor hinder the spirit's growth let me give you an instance of what in my case i call leads of providence so i wait a little now till returning strength comes to assist the weakened instrument of the divine will this i say most reverently and with full understanding of what i have in view when in edinburgh last winter i accidentally as it might be said called in at dr simpson's in the drawing-room was a lady from the south of england who hearing my name came immediately forward and asked if i had ever visited the islands of jersey and guernsey in the british channel i replied in the negative when she and her uncle proceeded to give me an account of the great abuses to which the insane were there subject and concluded by begging that i would go there i could not go then but i laid these things up in my mind well a few days after i was here dr tuke entered my room with some pamphlets asked me if i read french and said here is an interesting report from dr van leuven of jersey i read it during the day and at the evening visit said to the doctor i see a movement is made in jersey if it has led to no result beside employing dr van leuven to visit and report on hospitals abroad my going to jersey would be quite a work of supererogation for which i have i assure you no inclination do write to the doctor for information this was done at once the return post brought the following answer and determined my duty and next work as soon as i am well enough dr van leuven's letter is as follows quote, island of jersey my dear tuke i have your welcome letter and hasten to answer you about miss dix's visit strange to say it was only last saturday fifth of may three days ago that i had a proposal for mr isaac pothecary of grove place near southampton well known for its inhuman treatment and dealings in lunatics see reports of the commissioners asking if i would give him some information and assistance in establishing a private asylum for the insane in jersey he could not go on in england since the commissioners were so severe the laws so stringent and the formalities for the reception of patients so embarrassing to escape or avoid all this nonsense in england he intended to transport not less than twenty private patients of whom some paid five hundred pounds and more per annum to jersey where even no license is required and he had come here to look out for two or more fit places for their reception. I would then, so he writes, have you visit my asylums twice a week and be well paid. I could not help, my dear Tuke, thinking of cattle and horses and slave dealers, and of York Asylums in 1816, and of Bethlehem Hospital in 1852. What had I to do? mr pothecary was decided about coming over with the poor patients next week i could not check him ought i to withhold my assistance well i thought i do not assist the mercenary interests of mr pothecary but i may assist his unhappy patients if i withdraw entirely i leave the poor sufferers at the mercy of their owner and of some of the many doctors in jersey who do everything for money so the matter stands in an island whose government does not care one bit for its own pauper insane and much less for those imported from england could miss dix persuade the english government to admit no asylums in jersey guernsey or wright 
but under the same laws as exist in England, this would be the proper thing. If Miss Dix will come to Jersey, I will give her a hearty welcome, and she may counterbalance the odious insanity trade now begun. Please communicate to Miss Dix my most respectful regards, and let me hear soon. Yours very truly, D. H. Van Leuven. There, my friend, this must help me get well soon. Adieu. Yours truly, D. L. D. End quote. Eminently characteristic of mystics, this final exclamation, There, my friend, this must help me get well soon. In her own entirely rational way, she was thirty-five years ago as thorough a believer in the mind cure as are today thousands in their puerile and superstitious way, that is, her faith in the renovating power over bodily infirmity of a great purpose or a generous affection was invincible. The idea, however, that should she chance to break a leg or rupture an artery, all that was needful was firmly to believe in a new sound leg, in order forthwith to walk off safely on it, or in a new circulatory system, in order to dispense with the degrading material assistance of a tourniquet, this idea, reserved for certain of her later more enlightened American sisters, was one which never crossed her imperfectly illuminated mind. Indeed, this whole letter to Dr. Butolph, with its enclosures, furnishes a striking example of unconscious self-revelation of character. It begins, as addressed to a physician, with the pains and infirmities of the poor body, the sole mortal instrument at the disposal of a most ardent mind, the chronic symptoms enfeebled action of the heart, irritability of the mucous lining involving both the digestive organs and the lungs, and others which have not been enumerated are clearly and distinctly stated. But soon heart and soul assert their ascendancy. A new inspiring project has risen before her mind. Not an allusion to the wonderful success of the recent campaign in Scotland. That work is over and done. Now for the next duty the Lord would summon her to. Let me give you an instance of what, in my case, I call leads of providence. To her there is no chance in the world. No one need seek after his way in life. It is revealed to him, if he has eyes to see and ears to hear, in the everyday events of life. God is in them. God speaks through them. The whole universe is the immediate call of God, requiring no other answer but a swift and obedient, Here am I, send me. The return post determined my duty and next work. One all-important link in the chain of circumstances through which, as Miss Dix devoutly believed, God bound every willing soul to its appointed task had, in this instance, been young Dr. Van Leuven, to whom allusion has several times been made. Among the French papers given her to read by Dr. Tuke was a series of letters written by this philanthropic Hollander, in which he had tried to rouse public sentiment in Jersey in behalf of the wretched and neglected insane. An extract will show the strength and pathos with which he wrote, though it suffers through its translation from French into English. Quote, Eight days after the appearance of my third article in this newspaper, June twenty seventh, eighteen fifty three, a respectable Jersey farmer came to talk with me. Through his simplicity, the stamp of truth, his discourse so interested me that I feel it my duty to give it here 
almost in his own words. "'Sir,' he said, "'I am only a poor Jersey farmer. Formerly I knew better days, but I have been reduced these many years by an unhappy, insane son. Reading your articles in the Chronique, I wanted to express my gratitude for what you have written in behalf of the insane poor, and to say, God bless your efforts. I then asked him to tell me a little about his troubles. Yes, sir, continued the good man. I have suffered greatly from this affliction which, as you say, has plunged so many families in misery. Through an epidemic of fever, which raged here sixteen years ago, my son became insane. Since that time, my annual trips to England for the sale of Jersey cows have been suspended. I was obliged to stay at home to watch over my son, for there was no one else to take proper care of him. My wife and the other children were too exhausted or had suffered too much while I was away. Our neighbors were afraid of him. How many times has he escaped from the house when I had to be elsewhere? For example, taking part in the militia drill of my parish. How many whole nights have I spent searching for him? Often I would find him asleep from weariness on dangerous cliffs and chilled with frost. In thus devoting myself to my unhappy son, I was obliged to neglect my trade in Jersey cows and met severe losses. His image followed me everywhere. Before long he became so violent that I was obliged to bind him. I went to the general hospital to see about placing him there, but I found the insane quarters utterly unfit for human beings, least of all for those insane. Finally, I was forced to resort to iron chains. Yes, sir, I had to chain up my own son. My heart was broken under such misery. Poor Jersey father, who have had yourself to chain your own child. How bitter will this memory be when one day you will see in Jersey a special asylum for the insane, where, as in the English asylums, there will be no more frightful cells, nor iron bars, nor any shapes of mechanical constraint. Such an asylum in this island, and your son could have been saved, and you need never to have been reduced to this poverty. End quote. Still farther information from Dr. Van Leuven arrived later, to which allusion is made in the following letter from Dr. Took, written to Miss Dix when she was somewhere away from his home. Quote, St. Lawrence Parish, June 23, 1855. I must talk to you about our excellent Jersey friend and his admirable letter of June 11th. There does indeed seem to be the most remarkable opening, and your power of doing good in the matter appears clearly established, whether or not you go in person to the island. Would it not be best to send the doctor's letter to Lord Shaftesbury at once, for perusal? Its natural and telling style would, I think, produce more effect upon him than any other agency. As I write, my conscience, however, keeps intruding with, but remember Miss Dix's strength. Spite of the saving clause at the end, it would look as though this letter were a little open to the construction of aiding and abetting an already too incorrigible offender particularly as only a few days before its author had written Miss Dix. Quote, now a word about your symptoms. I don't like them. They certainly indicate great debility of the heart, not your moral organ. And it behooves you to draw from them the lesson of rest from mental excitement. Still, 
who, after seeing any feat superbly executed, whether by singer, orator, or reformer, can refrain from an enthusiastic encore. Indeed, the worst demoralization wrought by military and naval reviews is said to lie in the fact that the sight of such splendidly equipped armaments is sure to inspire the minds of the spectators with the longing to see them quit holiday maneuvering and close in dead in earnest fight. Be all this as it may, it is clear that, for now six or eight weeks, Miss Dix's mind was steadily concentrating on a visit in person to the Channel Islands, and that she was only waiting strength for the undertaking. How exuberant were the hopes and resolves that filled her, finds eloquent expression in a letter to her friend Miss Heath. Quote, York, East Riding, England, June 1, 1855. My dear Annie, it is four weeks now that I have been quite unable to be out of the house. Till a few days this week I have gone into the garden in Lindley Murray's chair. Lindley Murray of grammar and our child-time tearful memories. Mr. Took was one of Mr. Murray's executors, and here I see many relics, the family Bible, the garden dial, and the bath chair. Let me tell you, I am now, though not strong for much exertion, able to go to Green Bank, where I am engaged to pass with my dear friends several weeks until I am able to go to the Channel Islands to fulfill a duty lately made clear to me of helping out of dismal dark dungeons those whose only crime is that they are sick insane, and so feared and tantalized till they are really what the sane would call them mad men and mad women capable of any outbreak. I shall see their chains off. I shall take them into the green fields and show them the lovely little flowers and the blue sky, and they shall play with the lambs and listen to the song of the birds and a little child shall lead them this is no romance this all will be if i get to the channel islands jersey and guernsey with god's blessing i was at a very good hotel but my friends dr and mrs took insisted on my removal to their nice comfortable home where i am tended as carefully and tenderly as if i were a sister i've been very feeble but not helpless and never cheerless it is now beginning to dawn on me that i might not go to the united states this autumn i do not see any great use in getting back just as the cold weather advances unless there is a call to labor if so, I dare say the strength would come for the daily task. Daily the manna fell from heaven. I should like one of your sweet, nice letters now and then. Cannot you give me so much pleasure? End quote. To Miss Dix's swift and decisive mind, one thing was clear from Dr. Van Leuven's letters, namely, that the hue and cry of late raised in england and scotland over miscreants carrying on private madhouses for mercenary ends and with nefarious and criminal intent had thoroughly frightened certain of them the country was fast getting too hot to hold them so far so good rats leave a falling house Yes, but they go elsewhere to burrow, nest, and defile. Thither, likewise, must they be followed up, repoisoned, and driven out of their holes. It was plain enough what was in the wind. Mr. Pothecary would quietly transport his chain-gang to the seclusion of the island of Jersey, where, happily, Busy-body philanthropists did not intrude to disturb the reposeful scene. 
There would he have his own paid doctor to wink at any little departures from the decalogue. It scarcely needs to be added that Miss Dix laid Mr. Pothecary up in her mind. Meanwhile, her grand aim was to seek to get measures taken through which the same aegis of government protection should be extended over all, wherever they might be in the United Kingdom. Not until near the middle of July was Miss Dix well enough to visit in person the island of Jersey. This time she went, not as she had entered Scotland, a single-handed woman dependent upon her own resources of will and courage, but as one who had now had the ear of the Lord Chancellor and the Home Secretary, as well as the prestige of parliamentary success. That she acted with her usual dispatch is evident from a hasty summary of her course of action, written from Jersey to her friend Dr. Butolph, as well as from a few flying notes to other friends. The letter to Dr. Butolph runs thus, quote, 8 Queen's Terrace, St. Helier's, Island of Jersey, July 15, 1855. My dear friend, I now proceed to give you a running narrative of my affairs here. Left London Friday, 8.30 p.m., detained off Guernsey by fogs, just escaped the sunken rocks, and landed four and a half hours late at the Jersey Pier on Saturday, 5 p.m., Sunday at home all day. Monday, 9 a.m., took a carriage and drove with Dr. Van Leuven to the hospital, found the insane in a horrid state, naked, filthy, and attended by persons of ill character committed to this establishment for vice too gross to admit of their being at large. After faithful inspection of the forty insane in the cells and yards, I drove with my letter of introduction to Government House, the governor not at home. I left a note, previously prepared, soliciting an interview at his excellency's convenience which i left with sir george gray's letter and proceeded to general tuzel's they also out returned to dinner at madame r's at three o'clock drove to look at a site for the hospital les moraines the escheated property of an insane woman who died without heirs from which the crown derives a handsome annual rent. I approved it for our use, if it could be had a free gift. We then proceeded to visit several insane persons in private families, a sad, very sad scene. During absence, the governor and Mrs. Love had called, also General and Mrs. Tuzel twice, the latter leaving invitation for breakfast on Wednesday and the governor for dinner on same day. Went early Wednesday to General Tuzel's, had a long conversation wholly on business affairs. At 10 a.m., General T. went with me to see the governor. First I presented and represented Mr. Pothecary. The governor received my evidence in the case summoned the attorney-general, thanked me for the information, and would resume the subject. Next we took up the Jersey Hospital question. I was promised all government support, but had to fight my way with three dozen members of the states, viz. twelve rectors, twelve yeomen, twelve chief constables or managers of the parishes. The Attorney General invites me to inspect with him Mr. Pothecary's residence, etc. I shall tell you sometime about this visit. I got some useful information. Thursday, drove into the country, still surveying farms and seeing the scattered insane. In the evening, some members of the committees of the states called. Friday a.m., other members called, 
and settled that the full board of fifteen should be summoned to an extra meeting if I would attend. I consented to remain till the full board reported and not present the subject to the government at home if they would do the work without. Tomorrow I go with General Tuzel to the Treasurer of the States at 9 a.m., at 10.30 meet with the Committee of 15, then go to Government House and report progress, and so I will do to you when I know what is the result. Yours cordially, D. L. Dix. There were certain features of partial independence and in the relation borne to the general government of the United Kingdom by the local authorities of the Channel Islands, which made these authorities peculiarly anxious to keep matters in their own hands. Of the sphere, on their part, of being reported for any criminal neglect, and so, perhaps, having their powers abridged, Miss Dix skillfully availed herself. So long as they would agree to a thorough reformation of a shameful condition of things, it was, as far as she was concerned, a matter of perfect indifference by what machinery it was done. In that case, she would refrain from appealing to Parliament, but either pledge themselves to do this work themselves, or be reported, was the inexorable alternative she would consent to offer. Meanwhile, that she had not forgotten one little personal matter comes out emphatically in a hurried line addressed to Mrs. Rathbone of Liverpool. Quote, 8 Queen's Terrace, St. Helier's, July, 1855. Today, I can only be brief. I am very much occupied. First, I have gotten Mr. Pothecary into the custody of the High Constable of Jersey by order of the Governor and Council of the Attorney General. So that business is well settled, and the laws will protect the patients he has so boldly transported. I have seen them. Next, I have got a farm for the hospital that I hope shall be and the hospital I will call La Maison de l'Espérance. I shall stay in Jersey so long as will settle the question of hospital or no hospital. One other letter of Miss Dix to Dr. Batoff is all that remains of her correspondence from Jersey. It is full of hope at what she feels will be the outcome of her visit. Quote, Island of Jersey, July 18th, 1855. My dear friend, at a full committee of sixteen gentlemen yesterday, the resolution was passed unanimously to build a hospital here for the insane, with the least possible delay. Tomorrow I accompany a subcommittee to search out a fit site and farm, and a structure for one hundred patients is to be commenced upon a plan capable of extension at need. I want hints, plans, and specifications from you without cost. Let me hear by return steamer. I must push these people, or the building will not be finished till next century. I expect to go to Guernsey on Friday and to England on Monday next. A few days more, and Miss Dix is back again in England with her friends at Greenbank, whence she writes to Miss Heath, quote, Safely arrived in the dear old home, I rest and am quiet to my heart's content. Friends are all well and in prosperity, and so I find them drawing toward the latter days in peace doing good to all, as they have opportunity. Goff, the temperance lecturer, has made a great impression here, and I am glad to see the impulse given to that cause is quickened and quickening. Barnum's book is vile. It has done more to dishonor Americans and the American character here than you would believe possible. 
End quote. While thus quietly resting at Green Bank, Dr. Tuke writes to congratulate her on the recent work in Jersey. Quote, I think you have good reason to be satisfied with the results already apparent. And with Dr. Van Leuven left on the spot, there is probably less danger of the thing being lost sight of. There will be nothing more needed, I believe, but keeping up a brisk fire. End quote. In concluding the account of this Island of Jersey episode in Miss Dix's career, it is here the fitting place to state that her own words, I must push these people or the building will not be finished till the next century, proved partially prophetic, but only partially. The next century still lags ten years behind, and these words were written thirty-five years ago. Still, it was not till 1868, nearly thirteen years after her bringing the Jersey Islanders to a sense of their duty, that a large public asylum was finally completed for the humane and scientific treatment of the insane. The nature and degree of the impression produced on the minds of many of Miss Dix's truest friends at this triumphant period of her life can hardly be better expressed than in the warning letter written her just before her departure for Jersey by her aged friend William Rathbone of Liverpool. It will be recalled by the reader that it was into Mr. Rathbone's home that she had been taken on her first visit to England in 1837, then apparently marked for early death by consumption. The last thing that could have been prophesied of her at that time was the extraordinary career that really lay before her. Indeed, to quote the recollection of one of the sons of the family, written just after Miss Dix's death in 1887, to Dr. John W. Ward of Trenton, New Jersey, quote, She was at this period an invalid, a very gentle and poetical and sentimental young lady, and, in the then state of her health, without any appearance of mental energy or great power of character, end quote. Through all the succeeding years of her labors in the United States, her footsteps had been followed with unfailing interest by Mr. and Mrs. Rathbone, and still they were living to witness the wonders she had accomplished in Scotland. Mr. Rathbone's letter was as follows, quote, Green Bank, Sunday, July 8th, 1855. My dear friend, not being inclined to sleep, I have thought that a quiet hour before breakfast could not be better employed than in saying, God bless my valued and loved friend, and speed her successfully in her progress, so far as is consistent with the scheme of his inscrutable yet ever beneficent providence." He has tried you in the success of what you have undertaken beyond what I have ever known, or, as far as my recollection serves me, have read of any other person, male or female, far beyond that of Howard, Father Matthew, Mrs. Chisholm, or Mrs. Fry. I speak now of the entirety of the success as much as of the extent and it has not turned your head or as i believe led you to forget the source from which your strength has been derived in the most tender love therefore to a faithful and self-sacrificing minister to his designs he may fit the burden to the strength and not try you too far by allowing you to carry the world before you that your head has not already been as we say turned by the magnitude and vast extent of your success is as much as the many other parts of your character the subject of my respectful admiration 
these thoughts have been suggested by the check so far you have met in your efforts to supply the wants of the insane in newfoundland footnote the asylum at st john's newfoundland the long delays attendant on the foundation of which had been to Miss Dix a source of constant anxiety and disappointment. And footnote. Your affectionate friend, W. Rathbone. End quote. That Miss Dix's head was not fatally turned by the unexampled series of triumphs of the past fifteen years was signal proof that her head was at once very strong and very well balanced. The testimonials so profusely showered on her had been the enthusiastic encomiums of great public bodies, of twenty state legislatures, of the Federal Congress of the United States, and finally of the British Parliament. Self-reliance, under such unusual temptations, might readily enough leap all barriers and pass over into arrogant assumption. The sense of power might easily become inflamed into a dominating passion for the exercise of power. The sweetness of praise might degenerate into making the pursuit of praise the end of life constitutionally ambitious of distinction as is instinctive with such commanding personalities what saved her from such a fate was the intensity of her commiseration with suffering and the fervor of her religious faith point out to her a new field of labor in which she could hope to alleviate the miseries of her fellow creatures and in a moment she was eager to turn her back on every remembrance of past achievement and plunge anew into obscurity and a life of lonely toil and pain. Then, as to the essence of her religious faith and what it taught her, she was a perfectly clear-headed woman, not subject to illusions. She knew, as simple fact of nature, that she differed from others, she knew that she could do what not one in a million could do. How could she help knowing it? It was so. All this her past career had made matter of daily demonstrations, and she, moreover, self-respectfully enjoyed the tribute of competent minds to the range and value of her work. Only passingly, however, did she allow these thoughts to engross her. The moment gaping companies sought to lionize her, she flung the attempt off as offensive insult. Habitually there was a deeper depth in her being, retiring into the sanctuary of which she communed with the momentous question of St. Paul, Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou hast not received? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? This was to her the divine voice casting down imaginations and every vain thought that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Downright before man, nay, often terrible to him, when she found him the callous oppressor of the helpless, she was before God, lowly and self-abnegating, an unprofitable servant. Then, once again, some cry of distress would fall upon her ear, and, in an instant, forgetting the things that were behind, she was pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling embodied to her in the word, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, you have done it unto me. Quite impossible is it, however, for any one who sanely estimates the frailty of human nature at its best to read the private letters and public resolutions which, at this period, were showered on mystics without tremblingly recurring to the words of warning from her aged friend, William Rathbone. God has tried you, 
in the success of what you have undertaken beyond what I have ever known, or as far as my recollection serves me, have read of any other person, male or female. It is well, therefore, to note from how high and varied quarters these seductive trials came. Thus only can a due conception be formed of how much she was really subjected to in that most subtle and dangerous of all forms of temptation, the praise of man. First, she had touched the spring of patriotic pride in her own countrymen and countrywomen, then abroad. How intensely may be judged from this brief extract from a letter to a friend in England of Mrs. E. H. Walsh, wife of the American ambassador to France. Quote, Versailles, June 3, 1855. Pray remember me to Miss Dix. If with you, tell her I kiss the hem of her garment, and bless God that our country has produced such a noble heart. She will see the honorable mention of her services by the Earl of Shaftesbury in Parliament, and Mr. Walsh is about to add his testimony to her immense worth in his correspondence. He regrets very much not having made the acquaintance of Miss Dix. He is right. Such a woman is to be worshipped, if anything human could be worshipped. Again, by the annual convention of the Association of Superintendents of American Insane Asylums, held in the summer of 1855, Miss Dix was addressed in terms of honor and love like these. Quote, Resolved that the secretary of the association be directed to request Miss Dix to favor us at our next meeting with an account of her observations and investigations in the countries she is now visiting, the same to be read in private session and be deemed strictly confidential, if in her judgment or wish such a course is expedient. Our association has never met without many grateful recognitions of your invaluable services to humanity, and though at the late meeting you and ourselves were much more widely separated than ever before since we became an organized body, I can assure you that you never held a higher place in our most respectful consideration. And while, on the one hand, we felt much fraternal solicitude on account of your continued feebleness, it, on the other, afforded us the liveliest satisfaction to learn that our mother countrymen have received you with that eminent consideration and personal kindness which are so fully accorded to you everywhere at home. We all miss you from the country, and especially do those of us miss the great benefits of your personal encouragement and cooperation, who are the immediate masters of those many mansions of beneficence, which owe their existence under providence to the extraordinary success of your appeals to humanity in prosperity in favor of humanity in adversity. We pray for the renewal of your health and strength, and shall hail with gladness your return to the scenes of your widest and most fruitful labors. I am, dear madam, with the highest esteem, your friend and servant, J. H. Nichols, Secretary. End quote. Finally, let the two following extracts from the letters of superintendents of large asylums in America suffice as evidence of the peculiar honor in which alike her sound judgment and personal approval were at this period held. The names of the writers, long at the head of great institutions, are, on grounds of delicacy, withheld, though in all probability they would give glad permission to have them used. 
the first extract confines itself to remembrances of past services of Miss Dix, when on one of her visits to an asylum, quote, It is not, however, by any such visible tokens as books and pictures that your visit will be remembered. Your clear and unmistakable showing of what our defects are is the greatest boon that you could have conferred. I did not misunderstand those criticisms, so delicately administered to others, and at the same time so applicable to us. Not only has every observation been carefully treasured up in my memory, but every word which could be remembered has been made the text for suggestive commentaries of my own. The extract which follows is in a vein rarely adopted by an eminent professional man to a woman with no other diploma but the diploma of a strong brain, a wide experience, and a great heart. Quote, Thus you see that I have not been idle during your absence from the country of upwards of six months, but have diligently striven to do what was demanded of my position and what I thought you would approve, always feeling a responsibility to your prospective approbation in carrying on a work which is so rightfully yours. If you can say, well done, to what is already done, I shall be glad. Your confidence and friendship are a well of pleasure and a tower of strength to me. I think I appreciate them. I hope they are not misplaced. I am not unaware of your noble and extraordinary achievements in view of the amelioration of the condition of the insane of Scotland. I know that this is a secondary consideration with you, but I think the narrative of that achievement will make one of the brightest pages in the history of the progressive ameliorations of the sufferings of humanity. End, quote. End of chapter 23